0: History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production.
1: At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership.
0: Welcome to the History of Persia. I'm Trevor Cully, and this is episode 75, The Education of Cyrus. Well, if you're looking for my episode on Xenophon's Cyropedia, you're in the wrong place. That's going to be over on Patreon in a couple of weeks. It's actually going to launch a mini-series over there on ancient fictional portrayals of the Achaemenids, because Cyrapedia may have a few kernels of otherwise unknown truth, but overall, it's a dramatic novel about Cyrus the Great. Today, we're going to talk a bit more about the education of Cyrus the Younger, what he would have experienced, what he probably missed out on, and then some of the fields of knowledge and learning that he may have been exposed to within the Persian Empire. We have remarkably few explicit sources for ancient Persian education. In fact, most of them are limited to just a few sentences. The only possible Persian reference to education comes from the tomb of Darius the Great, Where the late king described his own prowess in battle by saying, I am trained in hands and feet. As a horseman, I am a good horseman. As a bowman, I am a good bowman, both on foot and on horseback. As a spearman, I am a good spearman, both on foot and on horseback. The most detailed source by far is Xenophon in a long passage in the first book of Cyropedia, where Xenophon describes the ideal Persian education. The author was personally familiar with Cyrus the Younger. It's never very clear how well the two men knew each other, but Xenophon's personal friend, Proxenus, wound up in Cyrus's inner circle, and Xenophon certainly met plenty of other Persians in the royal orbit. Even though he presents this information as context in a largely fictional story about Cyrus the Great, it's considered very reliable. Regarding Cyrus the Younger specifically, Xenophon describes his early education in another of his works, The Anabasis. For firstly... While he was still a boy and being educated with his brother and the other boys, he was regarded as the best of them in all respects. For all the sons of the noblest Persians are educated in the king's court. There, one may learn discretion and self-control in full measure, and nothing that is base can be either seen or heard." "...the boys have before their eyes the spectacle of men honored by the king and of others who are dishonored. They likewise hear of them, and so from the earliest boyhood, they are learning how to rule and how to submit to rule. Here then, Cyrus was reported to be, in the first place, the most modest of his fellows, and even more obedient to his elders than were his inferiors in rank. Secondly, the most devoted to the horses and the most skillful in managing horses. He was also adjudged the most eager to learn and the most diligent in practicing, military accomplishments, and the like, both the use of the bow and the javelin. Then, when he was of the suitable age, he was the fondest of hunting, and more than that, the fondest of encouraging danger in the pursuit of wild animals. On one occasion, when a bear charged upon him, he did not make to flight, but instead grappled with her and was dragged from his horse. He received then some injuries, the scars of which he retained. But in the end, he killed the bear, and furthermore, The man who was the first to come to his assistance was made an object of envy to many. Given Xenophon's subject matter, Cyrus the Great filtered through the lens of Cyrus the Younger. His description of education is almost exclusively relevant to the royal court, and represents an idealized version of Persian society that could not exist anywhere else. That said, Xenophon says in Cyropedia that the same education system was at least trying to be replicated in the courts of the satraps. As seen in places like Persepolis and Susa, the public buildings and palaces of ancient Persia generally occupied a section of town set apart from everything else, limited or expansive as that town may be. Within that government complex, an area was set aside for all of the males at court, where they had to present themselves every day. Xenophon calls this gathering space the Free Square and says it was divided into four quadrants, one for each age group. His description sounds reminiscent of a traditional Persian garden, which is probably exactly what this space was. The old men, in Cyrus the Younger's time, probably the nobles of Darius II's generation, just had to show up and check in at some point. Their quadrant was a salon sort of environment for the old-timers to just get together and hang out. Everyone else had to arrive at dawn. For the adult men, this was time for a military inspection, and probably a time to be assigned their duties for the day. In the court setting, that largely meant political responsibilities in and around the king's personal life. This would also have included the adult princes. At this point in the narrative, that would just be Arcetes, Cyrus the Younger's older brother. For everyone under the age of 25, the school day started just after dawn with those over the age of 16 separated from the younger boys. Around age five, the sons of the Persian nobility would start their education. It was a sex-segregated program intended to reinforce the expected gender roles, especially in regard to warfare. But only Herodotus mentions the wholesale removal from their mothers and the idea of separating the boys from women entirely like some sort of ultra-masculine boarding school. This reflects the long-standing Greek misconception that Persian women were just as isolated as Greek women. As I've said before, Persian women socialized with men and wielded soft power in their own right. Royal women were deeply involved in the political and economic life of the Empire, and it's ridiculous to suggest that they were totally separated from their sons for decades. Xenophon actively contradicts this as well. He says that the young boys continued to live at home with their families and come to school every day with a packed snack consisting of bread and mustard greens as well as a personal cup to collect water when they got thirsty. The teachers for the young boys were pulled from the elders, men past the age of 50 who had retired from military life. By the tight-knit nature of the Persian nobility, these were the grandfathers and great-uncles of many of their students. According to Xenophon, there were 12 of these men to represent each of Persia's 12 tribes. But we don't really know much about the tribal structure of ancient Parsa. As an Athenian, Xenophon's use of tribe could mean anything from a network of family groups to a legal voting block. Herodotus only lists 10 Persian tribes. Some modern scholars view the heads of noble families as tribal chieftains. But Herodotus is always careful to point out that those were clans within a larger tribe. It's such a crapshoot to modern history that it barely means anything at all. These elder teachers were also selected for their ability to teach. Go figure. Xenophon emphasizes their role as philosophical and legal teachers trying to forge well-rounded statesmen from a young age. Remember, these five-year-olds are still nobles in a hereditary monarchy. One day, they would all be tasked with the duties of government, whether as a general, a governor, or a royal advisor. Or in the case of a prince, even the king. Much like any education system, this early stage is when boys were introduced to the core skills of reading and writing. Unlike most modern students, who will generally rely heavily on their own first language in day-to-day life, a Caymanid education would necessarily emphasize learning Aramaic. As the language of imperial communication and imperial law, Aramaic above all else would have to be a necessity for everyone in the nobility. Along with it, we can probably assume that these Persian-speaking kids, surrounded by royal monuments, also learned the Old Persian script. In the environment described by Xenophon, Elamite was probably also included, though it may have been learned later on when young men began developing their own specialties. The context for Elamite is never totally clear. Xenophon really dwells on the practice of teaching the boys law and jurisprudence by allowing them to bring accusations against one another and holding a mock trial presided over by the old men. When a kid was accused of lying, cheating, stealing, insulting, or any of the other general offenses that children routinely commit against one another, there would be a trial. They'd follow the letter of the law, adapted for the circumstances, and punish miscreants and false accusers accordingly. Xenophon adds that the teachers themselves would also instigate a trial against any child, they felt was being ungrateful, based on the belief that gratitude was the only way to build up a healthy respect for the people around you, whether those were your superiors or your subordinates. It was the 5th century BC, so we can safely assume that this system would have elements we'd consider profoundly abusive today, especially in terms of physical punishment. That said, the system of accusation and trial seems outright progressive by a lot of modern standards. Perhaps the most Spartan thing that Xenophon applies to the Achaemenid's early education is their meals. The old teachers were there to lead by example. Their students would eat alongside all of the young men and active soldiers, and the teachers would use that as an opportunity to teach temperance. They would eat to satisfaction, but not gorge themselves or get drunk. And they would point out young men who failed in that regard as cautionary tales. They would also make a point to demonstrate to their charges that they were hungry too, but they couldn't break for meals until they had completed their current lesson. Once it was time for lunch, The Roman geographer Strabo described the standard Achaemenid school meal. Their daily food, after their gymnastic exercises, consists of bread, barley cake, cardamom, grains of salt, and either roasted or boiled meat with water as a drink. Gymnastics here is referring to physical exercise in general. This ethical education was interwoven with a religious education. When I was applying to grad school, in just one visit to a prospective department, My roommate and I kept track of all the languages we had been told we needed to learn to study ancient Persia. The final tally came to 27 relevant languages. As somebody overwhelmed by Greek, Latin, and the need to pick up French and German, that was a bit terrifying. Reading mostly dead languages is different from speaking them, but just picking up a new language in any context is daunting. Fortunately, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. I've had more than a few times where I wished I knew modern Persian. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert in language learning for 30 years and built up a catalog of 25 languages to learn, all available through their lifetime membership, which you can get today for 50% off. Not all of them overlap with that list from grad school, but many do. Hebrew, Persian, Latin, German, and Russian, just to name a few. Rosetta Stone has no English translations, always the part I found most frustrating, and instead focuses on long-term retention through an intuitive process of working up from simple words to full sentences. Don't put off learning that language. As usual, the Greek sources have no clue what's going on with Persian religion. There's a vague understanding of Asha, and they know the Persians believed in divine order and honesty. There's even one reference to the religion of the Magi and Zoroaster, but the most specific example comes from Strabo once again. And they use as teachers of science their wisest men, Who also interweave their teachings with the mythical element, thus reducing that element to a useful purpose, and they rehearse both with song and without song the deeds of both the gods and of the noblest men. This is really where we see the idea that sits at the core of how the Achaemenids and other Iranians of their time experienced the world. Physical science, such as it existed at the time, was mixed with legends and myths, and then memorized by rote, often in the form of a verse. This doubtlessly included sections from the Avesta, but also history, tales of ancient heroes, and probably fables. Their physical science apparently leaned heavily into the world of gardening, made easier by the fact that class was literally held inside a garden. And this is unsurprising, given the spiritual and philosophical significance of the Paradise Garden in Persian culture even long after the Achaemenid period. Here, these children learned to plant trees, which roots were useful as food or as medicine, and how to make things from these natural materials, from poultices to weaponry to nets and linen cloth. Even though textiles were largely considered women's work, and much better arrows or spear shafts would be made by master craftsmen, it was considered important for young Persians to learn the process. Physically, these elders who worked as teachers could lead by example for the little kids to an extent, but they probably had to hand off that role to the modeling teenagers at a certain point. Physical, military education started early. In a Socratic dialogue that supposedly records a debate between Socrates and Alcibiades, as in the admiral we just killed off, Socrates praises the might of the Persians with a brief discussion about their education, including a reference to military training. And when the young prince is seven years old, he is put on a horse and taken to the riding masters, and then begins to go hunting. Hunting and warfare in the ancient world demanded a very similar skill set, especially in regard to cavalry warfare. In both cases, a noble would mount his horse and ride down his prey, but strike from a distance with a bow or javelin. In both cases, they would work as a unit, riding in formation to try and ensnare an enemy, whether that was Greek hoplites or an Iranian stag. The biggest difference may have been that a net was used in hunting, as a snare, but armor was not needed. The seven-year-olds were probably just learning the basics of riding, but before long, they would graduate to participating in the hunt, learning to communicate and operate over distances, and make use of weaponry to take down a moving, living target. And this was significantly harder to master than modern horsemanship. The bridle, bit, and reins had all developed very early on in the history of horses. But the Achaemenids were only just starting to adopt very rudimentary saddles around the time of Darius II. The very earliest form of stirrups was just being developed in India, and Xenophon mentions that the Celts had started trying to use spurs for the first time, but both of those innovations were far away from Persia. The Achaemenids made do with a simple saddlecloth and the reins. The boys would have started their training on foot even earlier and kept at it long after they had mastered their horses. They most likely started with the basics of physical fitness. Things like running and playing games that encouraged both cardio and military thinking. It's not all that hard to imagine an ancient game of capture the flag. But there is no mention of grappling or hand-to-hand fighting or practice combat. Instead, early combat training took the form of ranged weapons. From the start, noble boys learned to shoot bows, throw javelins, and spin slings until accuracy was an unconscious reflex. Greek sources are split, probably due in no small part to the famed but unusual circumstances of Cyrus the Younger, about what came next. Xenophon says that boys graduated to become young men around 16 or 17. The Dialogue of Alcibiades places that at age 14. It may have varied from time to time and boy to boy. Xenophon even kind of suggests this by stating that the next phase was at 17, ended at 25, and that it lasts 10 years, all in the space of a couple paragraphs. I would imagine that Cyrus the Younger graduated early. Regardless, the two sources are otherwise complementary. Young men continued their education with more detail and depth on the same topics they had been learning since early childhood. The teachers at this stage actually get younger, pulled from the ranks of the adult military men to emphasize more militant training and foster relationships between the youngsters and the active soldiers. Herodotus mentions that the Persians, like the Greeks, practiced pederasty, the sexual relationship between a young man or a boy and his mentor. In the Spartan context... Pederasty usually manifested in the context of young men and their military mentors, so it's not unreasonable to think that that played a role here. This was an accepted, common, and relatively public practice, so it's not like the trainees were being tricked or physically assaulted. But it doesn't really pass a modern consent check either. Much older authority figure very inexperienced, undeveloped person we'd consider a child. Not a great thing. I'd say even a really bad thing. At the same time, Xenophon also mentions that a few of the elders would still serve as supervisors to ensure that education continued to go as planned and that everyone was behaving themselves within reason. The Dialogue of Alcibiades suggests that four of these elders functioned as classroom teachers to continue teaching young nobles and princes the intricacies of statecraft, responsible leadership, and religious education. This may also have been the time to start teaching the more complex aspects of science in the ancient Persian world. Medicine, at the level to be considered a physician, was the provenance of the nobility, though admittedly that was usually the Greek or Egyptian nobility rather than the Persians themselves. Either way, this age bracket would be the time to hone medical knowledge for public or royal service. Either as part of medical or religious teaching, this would have been the crucial time to bring up sex ed if it hadn't come up already and the basics of reproduction. The Persians very clearly understood that certain traits were passed on through families, and they extended that to things like nobility and the quality of monarchical rule. That's why it was considered important for people like Cyrus the Great and Darius to emphasize their family line as a lineage of kings and rulers. That said... They also understood that some of these traits were passed on through the mother's line as well, an idea that almost never even entered Greek thought. They also understood some of the physical dimensions of this as well, obviously beyond the mechanics of reproduction. The Vendidod makes reference to the idea of removing eggs from the ovaries and storing them for future use. Obviously, the ability to actually do this was a couple thousand years off in the future, but there was at least a theory that it could be done. And you gotta wonder if at some point somebody tried on a cow or something. They extended this basic knowledge to animals and plants for selective breeding in order to encourage greater crop yields and new breeds of animals. Notably, the dog we now know as the Afghan Hound may have developed around this time and even appears on a Persian Cylinder Seal. In the realm of physics, this would have been the time to learn how those luxurious gardens they spent their childhoods tending actually functioned. We know this would have included some level of engineering and knowledge of irrigation because the Persian nobles designed complex building projects like Bubares leading the construction of the Mount Athos Canal. And knowledge of irrigation was essential to the knowledge of agriculture and gardening. And at this time, part of this was uniquely Persian. This is the Karez, also called Akanaat in Arabic and English. This was a system of irrigation, and get this, refrigeration in ancient Persia, that eventually spread across the world with the Arab conquests of the Middle Ages, eventually reaching disparate places from China to Spain. It may have been invented to accommodate the quantity of water needed to grow cotton, which had recently been imported to Iran, but never thrived like it did in its humid Indian natural habitat. The Cares itself was a sort of underground aqueduct. A shaft was dug around the foot of a mountain where you had the benefit of both higher elevation and groundwater closer to the surface. Once the diggers struck water, they could then begin work on a tunnel, which would slowly slope toward the ultimate destination, farmland or cities in need of irrigation. Along the way, a series of shafts were dug out from the surface for maintenance purposes. By carving the entire stream underground, water was not lost to evaporation and did not pick up additional sediment before reaching the fields or the reservoir. Around 400 BC, the current point in our narrative, another innovation was added to the Kares. This was the Yakchal a round, funnel-shaped building, usually three or four stories tall, with an underground basin that could hold as much as 5 million liters of water. As a land of high elevation and often desert terrain, Iran's temperatures vary wildly. Low humidity makes water evaporate even faster, and the sudden shifts in temperature from blazing hot to near-freezing encourage condensation. The already cool groundwater from a was channeled into the base of a Yakchal along the northern wall, where the shadow cast by the structure above ground would keep the ground itself just that much cooler. At the same time, the access shafts of the Khárez would allow air to get down to the water and become chilled itself. At the top of the Yakchal, a set of openings would let wind blow through the tower, creating a pressure difference, and drawing cold air up from the aquifer below, spiraling its way around, and being chilled even more by the heat transfer from evaporating water. This evaporative cooling effect can reduce air temperatures by as much as 15 degrees Celsius, or 59 Fahrenheit for those that prefer more precise measurements. You'll notice that most of the year, even in extreme heat, that temperature can drop you pretty close to freezing. In the winter, this would form ice, which could last well into the summer, providing food storage and cool beverages for the Persian nobility in July in a desert in 400 B.C. But at this stage, from about 15 years old to 25, Persian education mostly focused on military preparation. And that's what Xenophon was really concerned with. Much of this prep work was done with continued practice on the hunt, but with both more danger and more responsibility. The young men would trek out into the wilderness with their instructors and a single packed lunch, consisting of the same bread and mustard greens that their mothers had been packing for years. The goal was to hunt game, kill their prey, break for lunch, process the kill, and enjoy the meat for dinner. But these expeditions were allowed to last for two days so if they didn't kill anything early in the first day, they'd save their lunch for dinner and hunt all through the next day, either until they got something or finally had to give up and return home because even the adults were hungry. Sometimes these weren't even proper hunts. While hiking on foot, young men were encouraged to face down any animals that got aggressive with them. Obviously, we just heard the story of Cyrus the Younger fighting a bear. Preferably, they'd still do this with their bow and javelins, but at this new stage of their education, risks became more acceptable. As a result, they had started training with spears. The kind that you can use to skewer a charging animal, and one day the same that they could use to charge a line of enemy soldiers. In their mounted exercises, This newfound risk also extended to their secondary cavalry weapons. While the bow and javelin were the preferred tools, they always had to carry a backup weapon to enter the fray swinging. Sometimes this was the straight-bladed sword the Greeks called a xiphos, But more often in Persia, it was the kopis, a curved sword with the edge on the inside of the blade, or the long, skinny axe known as the Segaris. Now that they had entered the ranks of the young men, they would carry all of these weapons as part of official government duties. When the king or the local satrap went on a hunt, he was joined not just by his court favorites, but also this cohort of young men, the soldiers in training. They were the ones tasked with scouting, finding, and herding the best animals into the king's path. At the same time, this was an opportunity to gain first-hand experience in court protocol, decorum, and respect for the rulers of the empire, and also just to see how the king himself led by example. Most interestingly to me, though, these young men also had official duties around the palace and other government buildings. At this stage in their training, they became the city guard. Yes, the young men were tasked with patrolling public buildings as security, even taking night shifts in this line of duty. It's worth noting that Xenophon explicitly mentions that they still did not train in armor at this point, so these were not heavily-armored soldiers patrolling the corridors. It's even tempting to think that these youths may be the people depicted in all of that palace artwork where we see soldiers armed to the gills but wearing highly impractical formal robes. That would be just the sort of thing that made sense in the context of young men learning how to carry their weapons and live at court for the first time. At long last, though, we have to pass Cyrus the Younger by. He graduated early and was sent out to the frontier as Carinos, while his peers stayed in school. Just add him to the pile of rich kid dropouts who got a big allowance from Dad before making a name for themselves. Back in the royal court, his peers just kept on training. Around age 20, they entered a sort of hybrid point in their lives, which I suppose is still something we kind of do in modern America. They were still considered young men with the educational and social requirements I've described, but they also began training for government roles, learning the strategic mindset of a military commander, and were now allowed to marry and start their own households. This last one was definitely a perk, no doubt to encourage young men to get out there and make more Persians to rule the empire, before being enrolled in the army and potentially deployed to a garrison far, far from home, where there were no socially suitable wives, but plenty of dangerous brigands. As Xenophon describes it, The young men were still required to show up for their physical training and roll call every day at dawn. But once they were married, they were allowed to show up a bit late, so long as they didn't make a habit out of it. But even at 25, when the youths reached the real age of majority, their education wasn't entirely complete, but they were getting close. 25-year-old Achaemenid nobles were finally enrolled in the army as men. Then, and only then, were they actually trained for close-quarters combat. Now that they were adults, they began to train with the scaled armor on their chests, a shield on their left arm, and a sword in their right hand for the eventuality of personal conflict. This reflects Persian priorities. Horsemanship and archery were utterly essential. Spear work was necessary. Sword play was a last resort, but at the end of the day, an Achaemenid soldier had to know it all. They just accepted that swordsmanship would be learned on the job. Those who did not enroll immediately into the army were those newly-minted men who took public office. They became legal officials, local governors, treasury officers, and even satraps. Likewise, the specific skills of these different bureaucratic duties were picked up on the job rather than part of their formal education. And before long, all aspects of formal education were complete, and they were simply the powerful ruling class of the greatest empire the world had ever seen. And when they turned 50, these men too rotated out of the army and into the ranks of the elders. There, they acted as judges, statesmen, and the teachers of the young boys. But once again, history would have other plans for Cyrus the Younger but I'm still not ready to kill Darius II. So Cyrus can wait his turn this one time, even if that's the only thing he was never any good at. In the next episode, we will revisit Persepolis to see what was going on outside of the palace walls. Until then, you can find more information about this podcast at historyofpersiapodcast.com. That's where you'll find things like the About page, the Achaemenid Family Tree, My Bibliography, and the Support page, where you can find different ways to financially support this podcast. That includes one-time payments through Stripe, affiliate links, but most importantly, at patreon.com historyofpersia, you can sign up for a monthly subscription that will get you access to things like ad-free listening and bonus episodes. But of course, there are entirely free ways to support this project as well. You can always leave a review on your platform of choice. But the thing I asked most of all is to let other people know about the history of Persia. Get the word out, tell other people to listen, share it on social media. You can find me on there at History of Persia Podcast for Facebook and Instagram, and just at History of Persia on Twitter. Until next time, thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia.